Well, we are in John chapter 3 as we work through the Gospel of John in our morning service. Would you please open your Bibles to John chapter 3? We'll begin with verse 16, which many of you probably have memorized. I memorized the King James Version when I was a child. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is one text of Scripture that you probably know very well. Indeed, the whole country seems to know this verse and probably thinks they understand this verse. And it's well that they should. This is certainly the most popular of all the Scriptures, at least in our country. And it's good because it, it tells us something about God's internal motivation one of the things that drives His action on earth, and it's something very important. So hearing the verse and knowing the verse, you might think that there really is nothing more that you could learn from this text, that you understand the message quite well. So this sermon should be very quick. But my suspicion is that you do understand something of this text. Uh, this is not a text that is a surprise to you. But my prayer is that at the end of the sermon, you will understand it even more deeply and more comprehensively than you ever have before. So would you please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word? I'm actually going to begin with verse 14 for context. Remember, this is a conversation Jesus is having with Nicodemus. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed." But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Lord God, what an honor and privilege it is to come into your presence, to hear your word. And we do confess once again that we need Your Spirit. We need Your Spirit's power in our lives to understand what has just been read. We pray that You would work a mighty work in our hearts that this very familiar text would be seen with the power and the grandeur that displays the glory that is Yours. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, a recent poll revealed that 81% of Americans, think of that, 8 out of 10 Americans, 
believe that man is inherently good. We're inherently good. 75% of those polled think that they themselves are good people. I remember one of the children's sermons, I had the kids up here and I said, are you all good? And they all said, well, not all of them, but many of them said, yes, we are good. So this is a, a child's mentality, isn't it? It's the way that we are, are, are born, thinking that we're good. So 75% of folks think that they're good people. Almost 50%, one out of two, believe that they are better people than anyone else they know. 50%. These beliefs, I don't think, are just common to Americans. I think these are common to all man, all mankind. We are all delusional about our own goodness. And this actually impacts how people see John 3.16 and the following verses. Well, most people don't even read the following verses because 3.16 packs all the punch they want. Of course God loves the world. I'm in it. What's not to love? We're all pretty decent. Not surprised that God loves the world. We're good. At least I'm pretty good. I'm better than anyone else I know. So you see that John 3.16, taken from a human perspective, means something absolutely different than the text would indicate. So we're going to spend some time just talking about this verse and the verses that follow. For God so loved the world. I'm going to make two points. First, we'll look at the shocking love of God. And then we'll look at the shocking unbelief of man. But first, the love of God. The shocking love of God. Remember, this is in the context of a conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. He told Nicodemus already, you must be born again. If you're going to come to the kingdom of God, there's something that has to happen first, and it's something you can't control. It's like the wind. And the Spirit must renew you. You must be regenerate. You must be born again. It's a work of God. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? And then he taught Nicodemus about salvation. Believe in the Son of Man. The Son of Man who came from heaven and will be lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. You have to believe in the Son of Man. And then right after this, Jesus tells this teacher of Israel that having eternal life isn't related to being Jewish. It's related to loving God and understanding the love of God for the world. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. So this, this actually is a shocking statement that God loved the world, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. We've already said that most people probably don't find it shocking at all. They think they're pretty good. We're actually very lovable people. The idea that God would come to that realization doesn't surprise us that He would send His own Son. Of course He would send His Son. He's saving us. But I think it's shocking. The love of God is shocking for two reasons. I'm going to talk about both of them. First, because of mankind's horrible sinfulness and wickedness. But secondly, because of God's perfect and holy nature. 
Both of these things make God's love shocking. First, let's talk about our sinfulness. In Deuteronomy, excuse me, in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, before the flood, we read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. So we read that and we think, wow, those people in Noah's day were wicked. These were some wicked people. Do you think the people in Noah's day were more wicked than the people today that live on the earth? Has the world improved since the flood? Have the world, the flesh, and the devil become less effective since the flood in working evil? We read in Hosea that even God's chosen people were idolaters, were more wicked than could have ever been imagined. Do you think it was any different in the time of Nicodemus? Now certainly God did and does restrain evil every day and especially for His chosen people. The Word, the patriarchs, the prophets, the covenants, the law were all given to His people, the people of Israel. But were their hearts in themselves less wicked than in the days of Noah? The answer is no. And I'm sure that Nicodemus probably heard these words and he was probably thinking like most Americans. Well, if God really loves anyone, it's probably me. I'm an Israelite. I'm a son of Abraham. I'm a Pharisee. I'm righteous before the law. But the reality is left to our own devices apart from the restraining hand of God. The days of Noah are like the days of today and like the days of Nicodemus. The Lord still looks and sees that the wickedness of man is great upon the earth. And in that light, do you understand that Hosea describes in chapter 2 that we read not just the faithful love of God to a wicked and idolatrous people in Israel, but this also reflects the undeserved love of God to wicked people everywhere, to sinners like me and like you. We still whore after other gods apart from Christ. You are not righteous in and of yourself. Your lusts are just as abhorrent in the sight of a holy God. Your sin and idolatry make you repulsive to a holy God, an enemy of God, apart from Christ. And yet in spite of that wickedness and that revulsion against your sin, Hosea says in chapter 2.19, God says, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. The covenant promise. This is the covenant promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. You see, God is faithful even in the midst of great wickedness. So man is not good. Man is wicked. 
And this is the human context of God's love. Wickedness and sin. And it's a wickedness so filthy that we can't imagine. But what's more astounding is the nature of God who loves this wicked world. He's pure. He's holy. He's infinite. So in other words, we are much worse than we ever imagined. But God's love is more pure and holy and wonderful than we could ever comprehend. That's what's so shocking about it. Let's talk about God's love for a moment. The second thing that makes it shocking is His holy nature. He's holy. He's holy and pure. The smallest sin is enough to be cast from His presence forever, such as His holiness. But you should understand about the love of God that He didn't create man because He was lonely and needed someone to love. The Scriptures don't teach us that at all. The love that existed between the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost was perfectly complete and fulfilling in every way. This infinite and eternal and unchangeable love has always existed in the Godhead. We see this all through the Gospels. In Matthew 3, the Father said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. John 14, 31, Jesus says, I do all that the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. John 16, 14, Jesus said, The Spirit will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Finally, the last example of this triune love that I'll highlight is John 17, verse 26. Jesus said, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So this love of God, this love of God that He showers upon the world is not something that He he had to, to gin up just for the world. It's always existed. In the Godhead, the love of God. And it's as different in purity from human love that we have for each other. It's as different as God is higher and more wise and more infinite and more holy than man. So this is a wonderful and shocking love. It's an alien love. It's the love of an eternally faithful and steadfast God. And this is part of who He is. 1 John 4, 8, John says that God is love. It's also important to understand that this is an attribute that God shared with man. He didn't have to share love with us when He created us, but He did. He shared this attribute with man so that we can have a shadow. We can see just very dimly the love of God. Finally, it's always going to be fully seen in Christ. And this was the promise. You remember the promise given to Adam and Eve after the fall when God told the serpent that He would put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. That's Christ. 
and he shall bruise your head, says to the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, God promised a redeemer, a redeemer who would crush the serpent's head. And from the very beginning, God had ordained to show his love for man through a redeemer. The Lamb of God, slain from the creation of the world. His whole purpose was the context of love to come and redeem mankind. This is how He showed us His love. 1 John 4.9 says as much. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus in these verses, this is what God's love looks like. God sent a Redeemer. Jesus is saying, I'm that guy. He's fulfilling His promise to mankind. And this Redeemer would be lifted up. So the entire mission of the Son of God is bound up in this this shocking, otherworldly love. This love that is dispensed to wicked, sinful humanity. So let's look at the text. That, I guess, was by means of introduction. Let's look at the text itself. For God so loved the world. First look at the word for. For, this connects it to the previous verses. Clearly. This is a conversation with Nicodemus about the new birth about salvation. How can these things be? And he tells them, the Son of Man must be lifted up. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Remember, this is the Gospel. All the angels and prophets have longed to look into these matters, this mystery of redemption. And this divine love for a sinful humanity. This this rests upon rests upon us like a warm blanket for those who have received that love. But who loved? God. Look at the subject in this sentence. It's God who loved. And He gave. God is the source of our salvation. He is the wellspring of all divine love. He's the one acting. God is doing the action. He's the divine subject of the verb. John Murray said, love, this kind of love is so amazing that we cannot scale its heights nor fathom its depths. He's just echoing what Paul said after he described the Gospel in the first 11 chapters of Romans. At the end of Romans 11, he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. This is wonderful that God loved the world and He gave His only Son. Especially when you consider the great sacrifice that was required. He gave His Son. The Father loved the world and gave His only Son. Of course, in Genesis 22, we see this picture in the Old Testament of Abraham who had one son of promise named Isaac. And God told him to take that son and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. That was just a shadow of what the father would do 
about 2,000 years later, that God loved the world and gave His only Son. And the Son came to the world and He was rejected and despised. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was murdered by men and forsaken by His Father on the cross. Truly the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. This is a love that would bear the eternity of wrath on the cross for those whom His Father had given Him. Let's take just a moment too and look at the word world. God so loved the world. There's been great confusion about this verse. Many think that it teaches, maybe a minority, but many think that it teaches that God's redemptive love in this verse is basically saying that everyone in the world who's ever lived will be saved. That's His love for the world. But of course, the context and the verses that follow bar any understanding of universalism in this verse. Others would say, well, the world means everyone has an opportunity for faith. The door's open to anyone who hears this. And it's really all up to the person. God is sovereign in all things, but not in salvation. And that's what this verse is teaching us. And of course, the context, as well as the counsel of Scripture, speak against that understanding as well. So what do I mean when we say the context? Well, let's look at what, what's happening when people do those things is they think they're protecting God and His honor in some way. Well, if, if we think that God's saving love, His redemptive love, is actually for His elect then somehow that makes God not a loving God at all. Well, this is not right. This is not true. There is a sense in which God's love for the world is seen every day. He's compassionate and gracious and slow to anger. And even the wicked are allowed to live and move and have their being. They experience some level of happiness in their lives despite the rebellion against God. And in this we see a general disposition of love and mercy to all of humanity. But when it comes to salvation, when it comes to redemptive love, which Jesus is talking about here, when it comes to the love of a triune God for those whom He came to save, the Father giving a people to the Son to redeem to Himself, this is a very particular love. It's an individual love. It's a personal love. So think of how Nicodemus is receiving this information. Nicodemus is a Jew. And he's always thought that Jewish people were the beloved. The Jewish people were the ones that God really loves. And no one really is going to be able to come to God unless they're Jewish. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. no. God doesn't just love you, Nicodemus. God doesn't just love the Jews. God loves the world. In other words, this is a love that's not restricted to one ethnicity. It's not restricted to one part of the world. It's everyone in the world who would come to Him. Not just Jews. Jesus is teaching Nicodemus something about the expanse of God's love. And all that the Father had given Him would come to Him. John 17 says. And that's not just Jewish people. We are the evidence of that. Some of us are Jews, but not all. 
In John 6, Jesus says as well, all that the Father gives me will come to me. From every part of the world. Not just Jews. Nicodemus has learned then these truths about the saving love of God. Everything about it was shocking to him. You must be born again. Jesus came from heaven and would be lifted up. And God loved not just Jewish people, but the whole world of sinners. That He would save His elect from every corner of the globe. And this is true, that God would regenerate all whom He's determined to save. Salvation is in the hands of God. And this is also true, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. You see, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. That's verse 17. This is an immense and perfect and wonderful love. God came to the world to bring salvation. God came to the world to open blind eyes and bring dead to life, bringing healing and wholeness where there had never been anything before but sickness and, and death. And into this wicked world, He sent His beloved Son to pay the penalty that sinners like you and me deserved. He didn't come to condemn the world. Someday He will come back and judge the world. But the point Jesus is making here is that the world deserved wrath and God sent His Son in love. It's a shocking love. He came to bring salvation to the world. So that's the love of God. Let's look at the shocking unbelief of man. Right after this, we read that many would not believe in the Son. They would hate the light. Verse 18 says, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Amen. This is the Gospel. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. They're not condemned because they don't believe. They're condemned already. They remain dead in their sins because He has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What a horrible judgment. I'm trembling just saying these words. He's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus came to the earth because we were condemned already. He sent His beloved Son to a world already condemned, a world wallowing in muck and filth. We're lost and deceived and blind and without hope. And then when God came to the world, it refused to believe in the name of the Son of God. They had been bitten by the serpent and the Son of Man was lifted up and they have to look at Him in faith and be saved and they will not. would rather die. This is a judgment that is brought upon themselves. And this is the judgment, verse 19. This is the condemnation, is the King James Version. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light. This is the verdict. And John has already told us this truth in the prologue, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. We've already discussed 
the world as an object of God's love, not just the Jews, but the world is whom God is coming to save. But now let's consider the world as John uses it in this Gospel and in his epistles and Revelation. The world, the cosmos, is always used by John to refer to the fallen or wicked race of man that hates God. And it's helpful, when, especially when reading Revelation, when you read about the people of the world, he's talking about the fallen race of man, not those who love God. But this is why in 1 John 3 we read, not to love the world or anything in the world. He says, for anyone loves, loving the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. So the judgment against mankind, this is the judgment, light has come into the world, but people love the darkness. This is a, an astounding unbelief. Think of yourself in a dark room and you have a blindfold on and someone turns on a light so that you can make your way out of the house. But all you have to do is remove the blindfold and and walk with the light. Well, they refused to do it. They refused to come to the light. They reject the light. The unbelief of man is great. And it's shocking. They loved darkness rather than the light, it says in verse 19, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. They loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Let's pause for a moment and just consider man's responsibility related to God's sovereignty. Nicodemus has already heard about the new birth, that you must be born again. Nobody chooses when they're born or how they're born or where they're born. This is something God does. And man, for their part, does wicked things and hates the light and doesn't want to be exposed. So God, Jesus tells Nicodemus that nobody can come to Him unless He's born again. And then Jesus tells Nicodemus that all must come to Him and believe. They're both true. The text does not say, nor should our hearts ever say, for instance, verse 19. It doesn't say, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. Yet God didn't regenerate them, so they remained in the darkness. This is trying to, to, to work out something that is not to be worked out by us on this earth. You're trying to merge two complementary doctrines of Scripture into one in a way to, to use the pride of our hearts to, to place the blame for God or for man's unrepentance on God. And this is not right. The Scriptures don't do this. The reality is we believe that God's sovereignty and salvation is absolutely true. No one comes to the Son unless the Father draws Him. Amen. We also believe that every man is responsible for the rejection of God. This is absolutely true. And we hold two truths and we love them both until the last breath of our lives. 
because this is what the Scriptures teach. This actually encourages us as we share the Gospel. Understanding man's responsibility gives us an urgency and a compassion to share the good news with those who are lost. But understanding God's sovereignty and salvation gives us a confidence that everyone who is going to be brought to faith will come to faith. You say, well, how does this work itself out in real life? Well, it just does. Look at Paul. He was sent to preach the Gospel to the Gentiles. He repeatedly preaches to Gentiles in every city, you must repent and believe. You must repent. But then he also states in 2 Corinthians that the Gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. We read in Acts that all who are appointed to eternal life believed the Gospel. That's not the same thing as saying those who were not appointed to eternal life did not believe. It doesn't say that. It says all who were appointed to eternal life believed. In other words, those who came to life came to life because God had ordained that they would. They were born again and they believed. So what Nicodemus has been confronted here with as we read these verses from really the, the first part of chapter 3, talking about the new birth until now, talking about man's wickedness in relation to God's love, we see the, trend, the twin truths of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Yes, you must be born again, and this is God's sovereign work. And it's absolutely true that man is 100% responsible for his sin, his refusal to come to the light. So you might think, well, that sounds like a contradiction. Maybe in your mind, but not in God's. God does His part and we do our part. That's it. God's part is to choose for life. It's none of our business. Our part is to preach the truth, preach the Gospel, and then repent and believe in the Savior. And it's through the preaching of the Word that God moves the hearts of men. And it's the knowledge of your inability that's often part of the working of the Spirit to regenerate you. Do you know the Great Awakening? George Whitfield, his primary message was, you must be born again. Isn't that interesting? His primary message was not John 3.16. His primary message was the few verses before that. You must be born again. You're like, wow, that's... It doesn't really sound like the Gospel I know. Well, it's the first part of it, isn't it? And it's that understanding of your inability to come to God that created the Great Awakening by the work of the Spirit. So don't think that when you share the Gospel with someone, it isn't a real offer of good news and of Gospel. It is real. It's always real because it's an offer of a person. It's an offer of Jesus Christ. He's the bridge between the sovereign decree of God and the human decisions of man. Jesus. And the fact that we don't completely understand how they work together is irrelevant. What's important is that they are true. And they are. Let's continue in verse 21, talking about the unbelief of man. Whoever does not... Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be seen clearly that his works have been carried out in God. So there are some who will believe. 
and they believe, they come to the light. This is their action. It's their work. Yes, they've been born again, but this is the immediate consequence of the regeneration of your heart. You come to the light. You come to Christ. As believers, as followers of Jesus, the Christ, our works will clearly be seen as having been carried out by God. We live differently. We are not in the world. Sorry, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And we see that God has appointed us to life. He's caused us to be born again. He's placed His infinite love upon us. The love that existed forever in the Trinity now amazingly is applied to you and your life. And it causes us to love our Father. It causes us to live as ambassadors and strangers and exiles here on the earth as lights shining in the darkness. It gives us hope as well because although we live in the world and we'll have trouble in this world, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. And greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. When you see the troubles that are going on all around the world today, we have comfort. We have comfort because even now God rules and reigns on His throne. So let's conclude with just a consideration of this wondrous love once again. For those of you who know this love of God, who understand just how high and holy that love is, and how undeserving and sinful and wicked you were before God changed your heart and continue to be even after your regeneration, apart from Christ and His work, you should be encouraged by the Gospel. This is good news. The Almighty Triune God loves you. In Ephesians, Paul prays for the church and he says, I want you to have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God in Christ. You see, the more you understand that love, the more you understand the love of God in Christ, the more you love Him and walk in His ways. You should be encouraged if you love Jesus. He who began a good work in you will carry it on till the day of completion. The Gospel is still good news for you. The author and perfecter of your faith inspires the Gospel again and again and again in your hearts to encourage your soul as you ponder the great love of God for you. There are some here who may not yet know this love. Maybe you've heard about it. Maybe you've studied it. Maybe you've memorized John 3.16. But only now the, the eyes of your hearts maybe are being opened for the first time to the great wickedness of your soul apart from Christ. This pure and holy love. This pure and eternal and infinite love of God. But the shocking truth is that God will offer salvation to whoever will believe. There's nobody who wants to believe who can't because he's not elect. They just don't want to believe. They hate the darkness. But now if you're hearing these words and the Holy Spirit is beginning to work in your own hearts, 
put your faith in Jesus. Come to the person of Jesus. His work on the earth and His work on the cross was sufficient for every one of us and for all sin that's ever been committed. This light has come into the world of darkness. And most prefer the darkness. This is horrible. If you reject the light, you will pay a horrible price. And don't you see that your impenitence and rebellion is only magnified by the pure, amazing love of God. It's infinitely magnified by God's holy love. So as we contemplate the love of God, I would say repent today because God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for loving the world. We thank You that You have saved people from every corner of the globe. It's not just Jews who live in a small corner of Palestine who are saved. But all over this earth, you have your own sons and daughters grafted into the, to the line of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. We pray that the good news of the Gospel, that you sent your Son to die for sinners like me and like everyone who hears this message, that this would be truly good news because of the Holy Spirit working within us. Lord, we pray that all who would come to You would never be turned away. And that You would call to Yourself a vast multitude of people who would be saved and on the last day sing with the angels, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. In Jesus' name, Amen. Would you please stand?